Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Good morning, beloved family. How are you? I pray you are well because Jesus is on his throne. And if he's in you, he's on his throne in you. We just need to let him stay there, right? We can't throw him off the seat. So he loves you. He made you for himself. Nothing has changed. The doctrine, the faith once delivered to the saints, as St. Jude said, is still the faith. It hasn't changed. If people change, if people lose faith, if uh, shepherds or lay people or anyone else um, cease to believe or think that that was then, this is now, and truths have changed, uh, just ignore all that. And you keep loving God and you keep the faith. Uh, I think it was Bishop Fulton Sheen who said it'll be the laity that saves the church because we must keep the faith, and we will, and we do. Today, dearest ones, is the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. Um, This was uh, given to us in the 13th century, because although we celebrate the institution of the Blessed Eucharist on Holy Thursday, there's so much going on in that Easter Triduum that in the 13th century... um, uh, Pope Urban the Fourth wrote what is called the Transitorius. He lived. Um, let's see now. Herb, he was Pope three years, twelve sixty one to twelve sixty four, and um, the. I'm reading this straight from a book called The Hidden Manna, The Hidden Manna, written by um, Monsignor James T. O'Connor, uh, who died a few years ago. He is the wonderful priest, holy man of God that led me into the church um, in 1995. And this is the book he wrote. It is a theology of the Eucharist. It is a chronological theology of the Eucharist. So tracing right from the foundation of the church until now, uh, the understanding of the Eucharist, even through its heresies and all of that. It is a magnificent book, and it helped me into the church, published by Ignatius Press, uh, The Hidden Manna. Why is it called The Hidden Manna? Because Revelation calls the Eucharist The Hidden Manna. It is the manna, it's God hidden in the appearance of bread, and manna is what our Lord fed the Israelites with uh, for 40 years in the wilderness, And what does manna mean? It's the Hebrew word for three English words. The English words are, what is it? (laughs) The Israelites went out one morning in the wilderness, and they saw this uh, sort of, it's described as a coriander seed, uh, very light, light, light flakes, and they took it, and they could make everything under the sun with it. Everything. And it was angel's food's cake. It was given to them from heaven through the angels. Angels food cake, I call it. And it, uh, the, the people said, what is it? But that's the word manna. So manna, M-A-N-N-A, means what is it? 
And this is the hidden, what is it? The hidden manna, the Eucharist, the bread of life himself. Uh, and, And God gave us earthly food to point to our heavenly food. And this transitorus, part of it, uh, just floored me when I was looking into the church and looking into what was unthinkable to me, that bread would be God and that God would become bread, all of that. Um, and so uh, I, I want to read this to you. What I'm afraid of is that I may not finish it uh, during our first half hour, but I'll tell you what. If we don't complete it, that'll be okay. I'll get to the part that is magic for me. It's so, so beautiful. And um, Monsignor O'Connor says, uh, hold on now. I'm going to see. Hold on. Um, I just want to see if I can get. Oh, there it is. Get a better light. Got it. Okay, now. Because the type is. Uh, little small for me to read from here. Okay. Uh, Monsignor O'Connor said that Urban IV is responsible for decreeing the celebration of the Feast of Corpus Christi throughout the entire church and for commissioning St. Thomas Aquinas to write the liturgical office for the same feast. The extension of the feast, which had originated in Belgium, in the Diocese of Liege in the 1240s, was accomplished by the publication of Urban's Bull, Transitoris. Arguably, Father O'Connor says, I, he's Monsignor, but he wouldn't let me call him that, so I always say Father O'Connor, arguably the most beautiful document on the Eucharist ever composed by a successor of Peter. Do you hear that? The transitoris, which I'm going to read to you, he says, is arguably the most beautiful document on the Eucharist ever composed by a successor of St. Peter. Although Stone translated large segments of the document, apparently no full translation has ever been made into English. It reads as follows, which means that Monsignor O'Connor who was head of systematic theology for Dunwoody, uh, Dunwoody Seminary in New York before I met him, and he became pastor of uh, uh, St. Joseph's Church in Millbrook, New York. Um, he apparently completed this translation, and it was written in 1264, and I'm going to read it coming from Bishop uh, Urban IV, and it begins, Bishop Urban servant of the servants of God, to the venerable brothers, patriarchs, archbishops, bishops, and other prelates of the church, health and the apostolic blessing. Why did he say servant of the servants of God? I know people are going to say, how could he be called the servant of God if he wrote something while he was still living? That's the title of the Pope, servant of the servants of God. And he says, about to pass from this world to the Father, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, since the time of his passion was at hand, having partaken of a meal in memory of his death, instituted the great and wonderful sacrament of his body and blood, bestowing his body as food and his blood as drink. Listen, everybody. 
listen, those of you who take the Eucharist for granted or who took it for granted, who didn't fa- fully believe it was the Eucharist, even though you call yourself Catholic and receive our Lord for years, listen to this. This may be your last full glorious opportunity to know what our Lord has done for us in the Eucharist before you go to heaven. And I'm not saying you're going soon, but if our Lord comes back, hopefully you will. Father O'Connor continues, For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we announce the death of the Lord. Indeed, at the institution of this sacrament, he himself said to the apostles, this is Pope Urban IV, quote, do this in memory of me, end quote, so that for us, the special and outstanding memorial of the extraordinary love with which he loved us would be this lofty and venerable sacrament. Just a moment, just one moment. Okay. A memorial it is, I say, says Pope Urban IV. A memorial, um, I say, marvelous and stupendous, delectable, pleasant, most salutary, and priceless above all things. A memorial in which signs have been innovated and marvels altered. A memorial in which there is all delight and sweetness to the taste and in which the very sweetness of the Lord is tasted, a memorial indeed in which we attain support for our life and our salvation. This is the memorial, most sweet and salvific, in which we gratefully recall the memory of our redemption, in which we are drawn from evil, strengthened in good, and secure in increase and in which we secure an increase of virtues and graces, the memorial in which we attain the corp, um, the corpse, real, pre- I'm sorry, the corporeal, corporeal, my apologies, a hyphenated word, I read it wrong, which we attain the corporeal, means body, presence of the Savior himself. Other things, Urban, Pope, uh, Urban continues, other things, whose memory we keep, embrace spiritually and mentally. Let me read that again. Other things whose memory we keep, we embrace spiritually and mentally. We do not thereby obtain their real presence. However, in this sacramental commemoration of Christ Jesus, Christ is present with us in his proper substance, although under another form. As he was about to ascend into heaven, he said to the apostles and their helpers, I will be with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. He comforted them with the gracious promise that he would remain and would be with them, even by his corporeal presence. Oh, I hate to stop, but I have to. Otherwise, we'll go into the break with my still reading. Um, there's our break music, beloved. We will be back, and I will continue this, uh, at least to get to my favorite part. Um, and you are welcome to call in and text. We'll take your calls and your your texts um, and your emails right after the second break. Our number to call in is one eight seven seven. 
5-1-1-5-4-8-3. We stand at a crossroads in history. We can stand up for life, family, and a Christian culture, or we can stand idly by while the fabric of society becomes fundamentally anti-life, anti-family, and anti-Christian, slowly leading to its own demise. LifeSite News is the leading defender of life, family, and Christian culture. Through our news reporting, we seek to educate readers with information and zeal. They need to fight the most crucial battles of our day, and we need your help to continue that mission. You can support LifeSite News by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Another way to support LifeSite is to prayerfully consider becoming a Sustained Life monthly donor to help us continue to save lives in the culture. To donate, visit give.lifesitenews.com forward slash sustained life. Our staff of over 40 and millions of future generations, thank you for helping to save the culture. Blessed St. Raphael, Archangel, we beseech thee to help us in all our needs and trials of this life as thou through the power of God disrestore sight and give guidance to young Tobit. We humbly seek thine aid and intercession that our souls may be healed, our bodies protected from all ills, and that through divine grace we may be made fit to dwell in the eternal glory of God in heaven. Amen. This is Rick Paolini and Father Jacek Mazur. Join us every Sunday morning. We'll be delving into the diary of St. Maria Faustina and discussing the topics important in your life. Whether you're wrestling with willpower or praying for patience, God uses the diary to speak to your struggles. So tune in for Divine Mercy in My Soul every Sunday morning at 11. And catch the Encore presentation every Tuesday evening at 8. Jesu ufam tobie. Jesus, I trust in you. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I'm thrilled to be with you. I'm going to continue one of the most magnificent um, bulls, B-U-L-L-S, writings from a pope uh, ever penned. And uh, in the words of um, uh, Monsignor James O'Connor, who published this, he said it is arguably the most beautiful document on the Eucharist ever composed by a successor of Peter. So there's a part that I'm going to get to before the next break, and then we'll take your calls because it was just uh, my heart. I read it and my heart was in heaven. And this is before I came into the church. I was trying to study on the Eucharist uh, coming from an evangelical background, having believed that uh, communion, so to speak, is merely symbolic. And it says here, I continue reading. O worthy and uninterrupted memory, in which we recall that our death is dead, our death is dead, that our destruction has perished, and that the fruit affixed to the tree of the cross has made it a life-giving tree for us. There are my hiccups. I'm going to try to talk through them till the next break because I want to read this to you. 
This is the glorious commemoration that fills the souls of the faithful with saving joy and supplies tears of devotion with an infusion of gladness. We exult remembering our our wondrous liberation and remembering the Lord's passion by which we have been liberated. We can scarcely contain our tears. Oops, excuse me. Therefore, in this most holy commemoration, there is present to us simultaneously the joy of sweetness and tears, because in it we rejoice while crying, and we cry while rejoicing devoutly. Ours are joyful tears and tear-filled joy, for the heart filled with a powerful joy, spills forth sweet tears. Oh, the immensity of divine love, the excess of divine piety, the abundance of divine generosity. For the Lord has given us all the things that lie beneath our feet and has given us dominion over all creatures on the earth. He has ennobled and raised up the dignity of man above the ministries of the angelic spirits, for they are administrators destined to minister unto those who have inherited salvation. And since... uh, Hold hold on now, sorry. Since his munificence toward us was so great... Excuse me, still willing to demonstrate with particular liberality his exuberant love for us, he revealed himself to us. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm hiccuping. I'm so sorry. I must get this to you. All right, you know what? I'm going to take some sugar because we have a minute and I'm, I'm at the part that the beauty of it should take us out of our bodies. Excuse me, and send us to heaven. I'll be right back. Hold on. beloved i'm back no more hiccups it's an incredible cure that a wonderful gentleman once sent me by email hearing my hiccups over the radio if you ever have the hiccups um just take a little bit of sugar it's it's miraculous now we are in the middle of reading pope urban the fourth's bull transitorius that he wrote in 1264 in the eucharist and i'm at the part that practically floated me into the church in 1995. Okay, then, <clears throat> I'm going to reread the previous sentence. And since his munificence toward us was so great, still willing to demonstrate with particular liberality his exuberant love for us, he revealed himself to us. Then, drum roll, please transcending even the fullness of generosity he gave himself as our food oh singular and admirable liberality 
when the giver comes as the gift and is himself completely given with the gift. What great, even prodigal, did you hear that word? What great, even prodigal generosity when anyone gives himself. I read that sentence and I couldn't take it in. Like the prodigal son. He left his father's home with all his inheritance and he was a spendthrift. He spended it. He wasted it on all kinds of stuff. And here, God himself is described as having prodigal generosity when anyone gives himself prodigal love. He's a spendthrift. He just poured out his love. He wasted it on us, all of it. Therefore, he gave himself as nourishment. So that since man had fallen through death, he might be lifted to life through food. Man fell by means of the food of the death-giving tree. Man is raised up by means of the food of the life-giving tree. On the former hung the food of death, and on the latter the nourishment of life. Eating, eating of the former earned a wound, Adam and Eve in the garden. The taste of this latter restored health. Eating wounded us and eating healed us. See how the cure has come forth whence the wound arose and life has come forth whence death entered in. Indeed, about that eating, it was said, on whatever day you eat it, you shall die. About this eating, he has spoken. If anyone eats this bread, He shall live forever. Oh, wow. I I want to keep reading just a, a little bit. This is the food that fully restores, truly nourishes, completely satisfies, not the body, but the heart, not the flesh, but the soul, not the stomach, but the mind. Therefore, To man who needed spiritual nourishment, the merciful Savior himself provided by a holy ordinance of food to feed the soul, a food that is more powerful and more noble than any food of this world. There is manifested a liberality worthy of him and a work of kindness suitable to him and the eternal word of God which is spiritual food and refreshment to his creatures, became flesh and gave himself as food to a spiritual creature of flesh, body, flesh and body, namely mankind. Uh, We could go on, beloved. Uh, perhaps, um, Perhaps we can complete this tomorrow, but uh, we're just a couple of minutes from the break. And I want to say, as you all know, as you are all suffering from not being able to receive our Lord in the Eucharist, um, and um, and many of the churches that are open, the people are being forbidden to receive our Lord on the tongue, which really means that he's forbidden them because they don't want to treat God so degraded as to have him put in their hand and then take him themselves and put him in their mouth. Absolutely not. Um, It is absolutely degrading. It's horrifying. And our our bishops 
I, I haven't heard one of them who has talked about opening the churches in a process, according to a certain plan, that every one of them have said, it is for your health, it is for your protection. That is wrong. Uh, it's, it's a, I, I almost want to say it's a lie. I don't want to accuse the bishops of lying. But God didn't give us the Eucharist for our health, for our physical health. He gave us the Eucharist for our spiritual health. And no amount of keeping our Lord from us, either by refusing to give him to us on the tongue or refusing mass altogether or whatever it may be, um, uh, every single bishop and priest who does that has lost sight that their calling is not to save us physically at all. It is to save us spiritually to get us to heaven. And throughout history, not just Charles Borromeo, but many, uh, St. Gregory, uh, many, um, who am I thinking of, uh, with um, of St. Vincent de Paul, many priests and bishops have gone out in the middle of awful plagues, more awful than the coronavirus, awful, deadly plagues, and broken down doors to get to quarantine people to give them the Eucharist, whether they died or not. That's what St. Damien did when he went to Molokai. Whether he died or not, whether he got leprosy or not, they needed to get to heaven. That's the calling of a priest. Whether that priest becomes bishop, uh, cardinal, pope, it doesn't matter. He's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, and he is there in the person of Christ to get us to heaven at any cost, And so here, um, the priests are not only protecting themselves, but they are really, um, um, I almost want to say, killing their flock spiritually. It's an awful, awful thing. And we have so many calls. I have so many emails. I have so many letters from people. I had a call from a woman the other day. She just couldn't even talk. She was in such deep sorrow and tears. Mother, our Lord has been taken from us. I don't know what to do. Our churches are beginning to be open, but they will not give him to us on the tongue. I can't bear to to disrespect him and take him on my hand that way. It's awful. One priest is holding up the Eucharist and asking us to take it from him. It's an awful thing. It's It's sacrilegious. It's scary. For, for us who receive him, um, it's an awful situation. And the only reason I could give to it is that faith has been lost. Our bishops, our priests have lost faith. They're trying to do what is quote unquote good for the people. But their call is not to do what is good for the people, but is good what is good for their souls and get us to heaven. This is the food, the bread of eternity. And it's better that we die with coronavirus and go to heaven than be protected from it and kept from our Lord. It's very, very serious. Um, I know there are bishops that will be unhappy with this, but as Cardinal Burke has said, it is divine law and um, uh, that we get to church on Sunday and receive him and no priest has any power to go against that. We'll be right back, beloved. Call in with anything that's on your heart, text or email, and we'll take your calls. Be right back. 
The future of the family is grim. As Our Lady of Fatima said, the final battle will be for the family. It truly seems as though we're in the heat of this final battle and we need your help. Our mission at LifeSite News is to educate and activate readers with the information they need to defend life and the family and restore Christian culture. We are currently the most popular pro-life website on the internet with over 40 million unique users every year. And we've been experiencing an even bigger reach than ever this year. But we need your help to reach more of the 7.7 billion people on earth if we are to truly succeed in changing the culture. Please consider donating to help our mission of promoting the culture of life and fearless defenders of the faith like Mother Miriam. Visit give.lifesite.news.com to give today. Thank you for your support. Join us here on the Station of the Cross for the Liturgy of the Hours at 5 a.m., 3 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern with the Office of Readings read at 3 o'clock. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus tells us where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The Liturgy of the Hours is also known as the Divine Office and is the daily prayer of the Church. So you know you'll be uniting your prayer with priests, religious, and laity throughout the world. It's comprised of small reflections, readings from sacred scripture, and writings from saints and theologians. To learn more about the Liturgy of the Hours, visit thestationofthecross.com. That's thestationofthecross.com. Pray with us each day at 5 a.m., 3 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, Mother. Did you hear what I just said? I said, welcome back, Mother. This is crazy. I was thinking of Mother Miriam live, and I called myself Mother. I called you Mother. Welcome back. All the mothers out there and all the children and all the fathers, God bless you, everybody. This is Mother Miriam live, um, and I am still focused on the Eucharist. So sorry. Um, and our toll-free number to call in with anything on your heart is one 511 5483 Five one one five four eight three, or email at mother at thestationofthecross dot com. We have a text from Rosa, and Rosa says, "Dear Mother, I follow your program. I love it. Thank you, Rosa. If you please answer a question that I have: What is your thought about life in the divine will and the books of heaven of Luisa Picaretta? Um Whatever I say to you on Luisa Pecoretta, I say a bit haltingly, Rosa, she is now a servant of God, which means she and her life have been approved to a certain extent by the church. But her writings have not yet been approved, to my understanding. They're still being um, researched, her writings. And so I cannot answer you definitively. I have read some of Louisa Picaretta's writings, and I find them extremely beautiful. I have come across other things 
that are, um, to me, um, concerning or questionable, not because I'm the theologian, only because apart from the church's uh, approval, I find uh, difficult to understand. And so um, I cannot say further than that. And uh, I, I do believe she's written some extremely beautiful things. I know people that follow the divine will um, and cannot say enough about it. Um, and she lived her whole life on the Eucharist. I can't imagine someone doing that apart from God uh, allowing that uh, or purposing that. But um, I cannot give a, any kind of stamp of approval or um uh, even my own thoughts until the church goes further on her. So I know some people are going to be disappointed with my answer. We received a couple of months ago a huge box from a very, very dear brother um, with all her books in it for us as a gift. And um, that's where we began to find some things on, on Louisa that we wondered about. So we'll we'll see. We'll We'll follow what the church says. We have an email from Jeff and Aaron who say, Hi, Mother. We emailed you last winter about advice about adopting our 13-year-old daughter, and we are happy to report that she is doing well and that everyone in the family has grown on her. I'm so thrilled for that, you two. I, I, I believe I do remember that. I'm so glad it's working out well. And they say, We came across something on YouTube that I feel found disheartening. There was someone who had come out and uh, admitted, come out, boy, that's an expression today that's hard to use, who had admitted that she and her family rehomed an autistic son adopted internationally. Rehomed, in other words, they adopted him and they found a different home for him. Um, because she was overwhelmed by him and was advised to do so by her doctors. Lots of people have had multiple suspicions on this individual since, and understandably so. While we don't know the whole circumstance of this family, we probably never will, this supposed rehoming practice has been seen in our culture for years. Um, okay, I'm just going to continue reading. I don't know what your suspicions are. Um Okay, and rehoming practice. Uh, I, I wonder why someone would adopt an individual only to find another home for them if they can't handle them. I don't know if there's financial rewards involved. I don't know. So uh, let me go on with the email. <clears throat> we came in and adopted our daughter completely informed about her history, and we feel we are equipped to handle her needs. If there are families who have been informed about the special needs of an adopted child well after the adoption took place, what is the best thing they can do to be better equipped to handle such needs? Well, there's two things here. Number one, you need to have all those questions, paperwork, uh, psychological tests, everything before you adopt the child. So you know just um, the situation that the needs of that child to see if you can be a home for that child before you adopt that child. Um, and then if you find out the problems after the adoption, well, the better, the most you can do is based on what those 
um, problems are, then you call uh, organizations that that deal with those children, autistic or handicapped in other ways, whatever it may be. Then you call and you learn how to help them uh, at their stage. And they may already, they may also be able to put you together with other families that have similar children so you can, you can support each other. Um, Aaron goes on to say, when we adopted our daughter, we knew God made it that way and nothing can and will separate us from her no matter what. We are sick to our stomachs about the way, uh, quote unquote, forever homes are like placemats for pets and how children, especially international children, are treated like pets. God bless you and thank you for all of your work. Well, Aaron, you know, nor under normal circumstances, if a child was um, checked out and parents were checked out and they came together in this adoption, normally if it's an international child, the parents need to fly over to that country at least once and usually more than once um, and get to know each other. So if there are factors that came out after the adoption that were not known and it's a problem for the adoptive parent parents, then, um, you know, I would say you treat that child the way you would treat your own child, where um, epilepsy or, in my case, celiac or lots of other handicaps can show up later. They're latent. They don't show up uh, at birth or young, but they show up later. And, and, and you, all kinds of diseases, and you, you, it's your child, so you learn what to do, you take her to doctors, you learn how to treat her, and you know that you have a handicapped child who may never be on her own. And what do you do? You don't put the child out. Um, once in a while, there's a, such a handicapped child or mentally handicapped to such a degree that the parents are not able to handle that child and, and have to put her or him in a home, uh, all kinds of situations. I don't see it much different with a child who's adopted. If a child is adopted and has problems that you didn't foresee, well, you've adopted that child and you need to trust that God has put you together and find out how to care for that child the same way the natural parents would. If you're incapable of caring for that child, um, if you just don't want to keep that child because it's not the child you thought he or she was, now you're going to have problems and you don't want that, you want a perfect life, and you give that child to another family you should never have adopted to begin with. But if these are problems that come out and you didn't know about them and you emotionally or in any other way truly cannot handle them, not a selfish issue, but you are not equipped to handle them, then to seek to put them in another home, particularly if they have not been with you that long, um, if, or if they're very young toddlers, uh, it seems to me that would be all right. But if they're older, I, if, if all possible possibility, I would not put them in another home. You destroy that child, uh, her heart, his heart. Um, I worked for a home for... Uh, children placed as wards of the court. And I've seen children that were placed in foster homes one year after another after another. They by, they have, were in 12 homes by the ca- time they came to us. It can be very, very difficult for a child like that to ever believe he or she is loved, to ever believe that they will 
uh, one child I remember came in and uh, he had a problem setting fires where he was. And after he was with us in this home for children for two months, he said, no, we found him an adoptive family, I should say. He loved it with us. We found him an adoptive family, a beautiful situation. And after, um, I'd say after a month or month and a half, he set his mattress on fire. And the father came up and took the mattress with his bare arms and threw the mattress out the window. And the little boy, whose name was Johnny, said, okay, you're going to take me back now? And the father said, Johnny, why would I take you back? We adopted you. We love you. Well, look what I did. And the father said, well, you did. You you set... You could have set the whole house on fire. What you did was no good, but we love you. We're not going to send you back ever. And Johnny looked at him with tears, and he said, but well, aren't you going to punish me? And the father said, Johnny, look at my arms, because the hair on his, the father's arms was all singed. from so, and, and he said, come on, I think this is enough. Let's go have dinner. I, I'm a goosebump telling you this story, because I know Johnny, and I know this situation. And Johnny was transformed. And he grew up to be a model, magnificent Christian boy because nothing, this family would, would not turn away. He set the, the mattress on fire to get it over with. He knew the family was going to reject him. Why wait? Let's get it over with. I'll show them what I'm like and they'll send me back now instead of waiting in suspense. It changed his life. He never had experienced such unconditional love. I would say as parents, if you are not in a position to give a child unconditional love, to sacrifice no matter what, you should not be adopting a child at all. We have a call from Linda in New York on the line. Hi, Linda. Hi, Mother. How are you? Hi. I'm wonderful. How about yourself? I'm well, thank you. Good, good. Um. Mother, um, last week I was listening, I think it was last week, and this is the, this is the first opportunity I've had to call. Um, a woman called in, and she was wondering if Our Lady had died in Ephesus or Jerusalem. I remember and that. If, yeah, as I remember, I don't think you were quite sure about it, but there was something I kept waiting for you to say. Yes, I almost was, was going to say it. Go ahead. I, yeah, I think okay, I know. Good. Yeah, Tell me, though. I was waiting for I was waiting for you to point out that Our Lady did not die because she was not touched by original sin or any sin. Okay. And that the tradition of the Church is that Our Lady, uh, the, what they call the dormition of Our Lady, Our Lady, yes. you know, going to sleep and being assumed into heaven, but that's right. death could not touch Our Lady. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, uh, that's not uh, conclusive. Um, I I thought about explaining that, but I said, oh, now that's going to bring a little different subject in. Um, and I wanted to go on to other calls and emails, but you're very right. And even after that program, I did look up Ephesus or Jerusalem, and many people go back and forth. I think Jerusalem is the winner, but there's still no clear teaching on that. Um, there's also, uh, Linda, no clear teaching, no conclusion that the church has reached on whether Our Lady died or not. Um the dormition, you know, is means sleep. Um, and very often, uh, King David in the Old Testament, it was said that he slept with his elders. That means he died. Um, and so Mary, um, her body did not see corruption. 
um, because she's with, with was without sin. But there are many who teach that she actually died and then was immediately assumed into heaven, and others that she didn't die. And so the Dormition doesn't mean that she actually died, but that she did sleep. Now, whether that sleep means the complete cessation of her life on earth or not, we don't know. So if you look it up, Mary, I mean, uh, Linda, you'll see. You'll see those uh, different opinions, and uh, it's not conclusive. Okay, Mother. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome, sweetie. All right. And that was the music for our break. Uh, call in toll-free uh, during our break with anything on your heart, uh, 1-877-511-5483. Mary didn't seem convinced that it could be one way or the other. Um, I think she believes Our Lady died, and, and you're, you're entitled to believe that, and those you may rely on told you that. But um, look up uh, some past theologians, church fathers, and you'll see that the issue has never been fully settled. Okay, God bless you, and we'll be right back. Love learning more about the church, but confused or disheartened by the struggles we are facing today? Follow LifeSite News Catholic on Facebook, Twitter, or sign up for LifeSite Catholic emails, and stay up to date on the constant stream of news about the Catholic Church. Our church is in a time of crisis, and we as laity have a responsibility and a duty to educate ourselves and stay true to the faith. LifeSite News Catholic is dedicated to keeping the laity informed and educated. To follow us, go to Facebook or Twitter and search LifeSite News Catholic. As Mother Miriam always says, we must live as if it were true. Do you have questions about your faith life and the life of your family? Ask Mother Miriam each weekday from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern when the Station of the Cross brings you Mother Miriam Live, a program to inspire you and offer solutions to many of life's challenges. Hello, beloved. This is Mother Miriam with some very exciting news. Through a partnership between the Station of the Cross and LifeSite News, you will be able to listen and watch Mother Miriam live on YouTube and Facebook at the Station of the Cross, including past episodes on podcast. As always, you're going to be able to call, text, or email whatever your questions are. If you are not able to watch the live stream, you'll still be able to listen on your local Station of the Cross affiliate on the iCast. Catholic Radio mobile app or at thestationofthecross.com. God bless you. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. And I will be taking your calls and your emails and your texts. We have 10 minutes left and uh, lines are wide open. We just before this break, before I take the first question um, or the first email, um, 
we had a call from Linda who uh, wondered why I did not affirm the other day <clears throat> when asked where Mary was buried that I didn't affirm the fact that she was that she did not die. And I told Linda that it's it's not been a doctrine of the church that she died. People hold different views. And um, it seemed, Linda, you were not happy with my answer, which um, means that I think you are pretty af- firm in your understanding that she did die. I went to Catholic.com, Catholic Answers, uh, my favorite uh, uh, apologetics website, and probably the best in the world. And here's a question. Did Mary experience bodily death? I'm going to read you the answer. Yes, it is the common teaching in the ordinary magisterium of the church and in its liturgical worship that Our Lady underwent bodily death. <clears throat> this is the unanimous teaching of all the fathers of the church in the context of their teaching on her assumption. The fact that the venerable Pius Twelfth did not define that Our Lady died when he defined her bodily assumption has been taken by many to mean that she did not die. But in the very bull of definition itself, he brings forth the teaching of the fathers that she died, was resurrection, resurrected, and then assumed into heaven. <clears throat> St. Thomas Aquinas held that Our Lady died, as did everyone else. Uh, Blessed Duns Scotus did not deny that she died, but in his theology, his followers found a rationale for holding that she did not. This is a theological opinion that is licit to hold, but it is not the opinion expressed in the ordinary teaching of the popes and the fathers and doctors. Rather, the doctrine that Our Lady is everywhere seen as sharing in her son's lot indicates that she would have chosen to die. She did not have to die since she was without sin in order, but she would have chosen to die in order to conform herself to him who chose to die for the salvation of the world. This is by far the better attested and traditional teaching. So you're right. Traditional sin did not, original sin did not touch her, Linda, but um, she uh, wanted to experience everything that her son did. And so she chose to die. She was immediately resurrected and assumed into heaven, but she chose to die to be with her son in all his suffering. Um, Okay, we have an email from Mary who says, Hello, Mother. Um, I have something that's been weighing heavily on my heart to discuss with you. First of all, I was so happy to finally be able to go back to church a couple of weeks ago when the church is reopened. However, I practically cried through the whole thing because of how drastically it has changed. The masks, the separation, the way communion is distributed, no singing, etc. But what has me most unsettled is that I cannot honorably and humbly receive my Lord on the tongue directly from the consecrated hands of a priest. I understand the church allows reception of the Holy Eucharist in the hand, but for me this dishonors Jesus. What should I do? Your insight and wisdom would be much appreciated. Thank you so much, Mary. Mary, you are right in everything. You are right to be utterly grieved. You are right that it dishonors Jesus. Um, You are right that 
everything is uh, extremely grievous, extremely grievous. It simply shouts the loss of faith in our church that we would have given into the world. It shouts the loss of faith. And in um, loss of faith in the Eucharist, now I can't imagine any bishop that's going to say, I don't believe the Eucharist, but we are acting as if we do. Um, It has been pointed out that reception on the tongue is not simply the preferred way, but should never, ever, ever, ever be denied that everyone has a right today in the midst of this pandemic or epidemic or whatever it is to receive our Lord on the tongue. Um, and many have pointed that out. Uh, cardinals, bishops, priests have pointed that out. And so the only thing that I know to do, Mary, is do what you can to find a Latin parish. That's where we go. And we have communion on the tongue. Uh, the situations with the churches from the government is an absolute, um, I don't want to use a, a curse word. Um, I'm trying to think of a better word to describe it, though. It's uh, the whole thing. Abomination's not the right word. Uh, disgrace is not the right word. I, it's, it's a travesty. It's awful. Um, the, the Muslim churches are packed to the gills. So are their parking lots. Um, uh, sports fields and and Costco and Walmart and the riots. There's no social distancing. Uh, they can't have it. It, it. it it people and places are packed. The beaches are packed to the gill, but a church cannot have any more than somewhere between ten and fifty people in it. It is evil. It has nothing to do with the coronavirus. I will tell you that. It has to do with the government using this coronavirus to control, it's a political move, to control people, to shut down Christianity. Why the bishops are going along with it is an incredibly grievous situation and puzzle. It's so grievous. There are a couple of bishops who have threatened to uh, um, sue the government, and in... Uh, Each case, the government backed down. In each case, the government backed down. Why the bishops are handing the church and their flock over to the government and going along with them, and some bishops putting greater restrictions than the government has. It's It's unthinkable. It's because we're in a time of apostasy where the faith has been lost. And the only thing, Mary, I can suggest to you is no matter what it takes... Even if it's two hours away, find a Latin parish and receive our tongue reverently, which is to kneel and receive him on the tongue. That's what I suggest. You will still have no music. Uh, you'll still have some distancing, some distancing, but nowhere near what has been imposed on the churches. So um, that's what I suggest. Um I have nothing else to suggest to you, sweetheart, because we are in an awful time. I don't blame the government. It's it's the bishops that have failed to um, to keep the faith and to protect the sheep. Uh, um, we have a call from Denise from Toronto. Are you there, Denise? 
I am. Okay, sweetheart. Good. Uh, I just got a, a a notice that we have thirty seconds to the ending music, which gives you about a minute. Can we do it? Other other than that, call back tomorrow. Okay, I can. I mean, I can. I can give it a I try. Call back give it a try. Okay, I'll try. Yeah, I I was just calling because I just um, learned the Latin to pray the um, prayers in Latin, and I really Good. love it. And um, do you know why? Um, Latin is the sacred language and not Aramaic, which yes, is Jesus. Yes, I do, and I'm going to give it to you very quickly, because Latin is a dead Aramaic. Latin is a dead language, and um, because it's dead, the vocabulary doesn't change, the words don't change. It's always the same throughout two thousand years, and so when we speak Latin, we can go anywhere in the world and not be challenged by cultural differences or colloquialisms and all of that. It will always be the same, and that's why it's the sacred language of the church. Everything done in Latin, and no matter where you go, you don't have to speak their language. You know what's happening at the Mass. That's why. Thank you. Okay, okay. And Lisa, sweetheart, please see if you can call back tomorrow, and we'll take your call first. Okay, God bless all of you. Speak with you tomorrow.